If you turn your Bibles to the 13th chapter of the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, as we get near the end, we'll finish up chapter 13 tonight and probably another four or five studies and we'll be wrapping up the first letter, moving on to the second. But tonight as we continue a study that we started actually almost a month ago because of all the Christmas studies and all the special things we've been doing, the Supremacy of Love Part 3. Remind yourselves that the Apostle Paul is writing about love in the context of spiritual giftedness. He's already reminded us of what love is not. He's already made this incredible case that you could have all the spiritual gifts in the world. If you spoke in tongues, if you martyred yourself, if you could literally move mountains... If there were any number of things that we would call are the the most excellent of all the spiritual gifts, and in fact, in chapter 12, he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. You get to chapter 13, he's now expounding on this one specific thing, and that is God's unconditional, undying, everlasting type of love that is the character and nature of God himself. And so he finishes up with what love is, what love actually does, how it conducts itself. And so we'll pick up in the latter half of verse 6 and we'll finish the chapter. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that this love, this agape love, Lord, not that all the rest of the descriptions of the world's understanding of love lord storga is really good we should have affection for people lord eros is wonderful in the confines of marriage physical attraction it's a beautiful part we certainly desire that we might have deep and abiding phileo lord that we would be deepest of friends But Lord, above and beyond all of these things, the greatest spiritual gift that we could possibly have is love. It enriches everything and everyone it touches. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. And now what that agape is. But love rejoices in the truth. He's going to give us six things here that we'll be able to draw uh, from this particular portion of scripture that tells us how we could look at our lives and how we love one another, how we love in our marriages, how we love God and how God loves us. And he's going to give us the conduct of love in these remaining verses. And then just in case we don't understand it, he's going to tell us, you actually don't understand it. Because we're still here. We're still stuck in these mortal bodies on this temporal earth. And everything we know here is limited by that. Sometimes people come and they'll ask me a specific question about maybe some passage of the Bible And I will say something to the effect, well, to the best of my ability to understand it, 
to explain it and for you to understand what I'm saying. Something along those lines because you're asking an imperfect question to an imperfect person. I'm giving you an imperfect answer and you're going to understand it imperfectly. It's that simple. Because we're not yet fully glorified. We don't have all the knowledge and understanding that one day we will have. And so we're limited in that sense, both in understanding and in explaining by our humanness. But love rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. And again, it helps to actually read this passage as intended in the original language. Love never fails. It's incapable of being the wrong thing ever. It's incapable of being the wrong response ever. It's incapable of ever being less than it actually is. And because it is the character and nature of God himself, agape love, undying love, unconditional love, love that is eternal in the riches that it presents, is never going to harm. Love always is the very best thing. But whether there are prophecies, and I want you to notice this, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. So you can see him going back to spiritual giftedness. Then he does this repeatedly throughout all three of these chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, reminding us of what he's talking about so we don't mess up. So for those that think the most important thing anyone in the church can ever do is to speak forth prophetically, there's going to come a point in time when that prophecy will fail, and it can fail two ways. One is the person could prophesy imperfectly and it be wrong from the start. The second is when you and I get home to be with Jesus, no prophecy is going to matter because it's all going to be true. There will come a point in time when prophecy will become unnecessary. Even speaking forth the word will become unnecessary because we will all have perfect knowledge and perfect understanding of the totality and the character of nature and the nature of God. So no matter how much you prophesy, it's eventually going to fail. Not that it will be untrue but that will no longer provide for us the things that it provides today. Tongues, same thing. They will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Most of you can think of this absolutely correctly. If God is love and God is logos, Jesus is the word, amen, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. If Jesus is the word and one day we're going to be like him, how much of the word do you think we will not know? 
we will know all of the word one day. You're going to have every bit of the knowledge that you've always wanted to have. So there's going to come a point in time when knowledge in that sense, knowing something more than what you already know, is going to disappear. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. He's saying while we're trapped here in these mortal bodies, the temporal things that we know and do and say are the best that we can hope for. Now we can always strive to be better in our flesh, but ultimately none of us will ever get there while we're here. No matter how smart you are, no matter how prophetically you speak, no matter how much ecstatic language or languages in general you can speak, maybe you're fluent in all of the world's languages and dialects, one day it's going to mean nothing. Because everyone who's in their glorified body will have exactly the same knowledge, understanding, and ability to know the truth. For when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I actually thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. To help us understand it, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. Now understand that during Paul's day and time, he was referring to a little bit of a different process because mirrors were nowhere near as perfect in their ability to reflect your reflection as they are today. We have some pretty good mirrors. So much so that we've launched a few of them into space and we can look to the outermost edges of the known universe with them. We can get pretty good at seeing reflected images today. That wasn't what Paul was talking about, not the insanely polished mirrored surfaces of, say, some of our telescopes that we use to observe the heavens. He was talking about a mirror in his day. And a mirror in his day was usually two different things. Most often, they were actually copper or bronze. They were metal. And they were polished to a mirror-like surface. But the surface itself was imperfect. So no matter how shiny you made that brass image or that copper image, it was always distorted to some degree. It was never perfect. And so Paul was saying we see now in a mirror dimly. Our viewpoint from here on earth is distorted. Much like we look into some of our nice mirrors in our bathrooms that normally during the morning you look at it and you go, ooh, that's terrible. But as soon as you take a shower, that's not so bad. Because it's dimly now, right? You can kind of look at it and go, wow, that that fog actually makes me look younger. Paul's saying, look, we're looking in a dim mirror right now according to future things and our capacity to know and understand love. We, we can't love like God wants us to completely because we're not in heaven yet. 
we're seeing these things from Earth's perspective. But then, but then, man, what sweet words. But then one day, one day heaven, amen? One day we're not going to see in those dim mirrors anymore. One day we're not going to only know a little bit of the story. One day, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide in faith and hope and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's look at these six things as love conducts itself or how it works in action. And the first thing that you see here is love really doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in truth. The first thing that we understand is that there's no evil in love. It's kind of an overarching theme. It's like you cannot have and while this is not a characteristic of itself, it kind of ends the thought of what love isn't and begins the thought of what love is. And so it isolates real love, God's love, from all evil in every possible way. In other words, what he's actually saying, before you even think about all the things that love actually is, you have to remember that if there's even a smidgen of evil involved in it, it's not God's love. Can I tell you how that works out? In your marriage relationship, in your relationship with your family? It doesn't delight when someone someone else falls. It doesn't show moral superiority to other people. It takes no delight in the fact that they're inferior. Do you understand what I'm saying? Real love takes no delight in someone else's inferiority of any kind. In other words, real love never tears someone down. Real love never beats someone up. Real love is incapable of using what it possesses to harm someone else. Real love has zero capacity to ever engage in evil. So if whatever it is that you're dealing with has a smidgen of evil, you can assume it is not of love and therefore it also is not of God. You understand that? This will help you in every conversation that you will ever have that's tough to have with someone. Because the moment you decide for yourself, I will do no evil. I will do no harm. I will love as God loves. Then you figure out a way to say things that are difficult in a way that conveys God's love not with the intent to destroy them because God does not want to destroy them. It is Satan who is the destroyer, amen? 
So whenever you get into a situation to where you're tempted to think that love can beat someone up, love can shred their character, love can attack and bite and devour because it's tough love. That is not tough love. That is simply soft evil. Love by its very definition as this transition is made is untainted by evil in any way, shape, or form. So if there's hatred, it's not love. If there's envy, it's not love. If there's jealousy, it's not love. If there's covetousness, it's not love. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, the Bible speaks of this for this reason. We are to love as God loves. And I realize this is a tall order, amen? Whenever someone says to me, well, you know, I, I learned a long time ago how not to revile when I'm reviled against. Really? Well, teach me. Because I still struggle every once in a while. It's like, you know, I, I'm not thinking, you know, I'm not thinking about loving you right now. I'm thinking about rearranging your dental work. So I have to repent of that. I can't say I'm justified. That's why I'm telling you this. My selfish justification is not love. It's selfish justification, thereby evil, thereby sin, and cannot be associated with God's real love. If we get this right, then you will, you will take every single situation that you're in, especially in marriage, and you'll begin to analyze it from God's position Is this God's agape love or is this not God's agape love that's being conveyed here? And the moment you can say, no, this is evil, you can also say, this is not what God wants me to say or do. As we'll get to the letters of John in 1 John chapter 4, John states very clearly that God is love. And we began this chapter looking at that in its entirety. If God is love, then what God is, God will always convey. What God says is a reflection of what God is and what God does. So every word, every thought, every deed, the way that we understand in our world is supposed to be guided and governed by agape love. That's why I confess to you guys my driving. Because sometimes that's not agape. That's something else, but it's not that. And so I know that God's still at work in my life when I get on the freeway. And I'm actually not boasting about it or proud about it. It's just like, okay, Lord, that's not you. You know what I'm saying, because I've seen some of you, you drive out here on the, I've seen you. Don't you dare judge me. You're doing this, you you got one of those looks. And to prove this, the Lord Jesus didn't come to this earth in some stunning flash of Shekinah glory, did he? He came in meekness and humility As a babe in a manger. Now that's love. Who can't identify with the love of a baby? 
One of the reasons that children actually live through their infancy is because you're incapable of expressing anything evil towards them, right? That's the general thing. You, you pick up your child and it's like, I can't even think evil. It does not know any better. God's saying that we're supposed to treat each other with that same innocence. With that same beautiful care that we aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Any of us. So we're supposed to be motivated by love, the truly spiritual among us. If you want to be spiritual in this world, be loving. If you want God to approve of what you're doing, be loving. If you want your your thought processes to represent the Lord and his thinking, think of them in a loving way. How love acts. It believes all things. It bears all things. The word there that's bears or, or protects. And let me read it to you from a couple of different translations. So in the New King James, it says it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. A couple of other translations, which are also good, and as far as a literal translation, word for word, both the, the uh, New International Version and the New Living Translation are, are also accurate. The, the New International Version says, love always protects, love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres. The New Living says, love never gives up, it never loses faith. It is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. All three of those translations are accurate to the original language. And here's why I tell, that, tell this to you. If you take the original Greek word stego that is there that's translated bears or protects or never gives up, it, it means to cover by hiding. In other words, it's not saying to whitewash it. It means to shield from the effect of. It's as if you were covering it over so that it will always bear all things. Whatever's under there, love is covering it. Whatever mess you've made, whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever hard thing it is that you're dealing with, Real agape love is a covering over it that obscures what is actually being done that is wrong so that when people see it and hear it and understand it, all they see is love. It's like that covering that we put on a lot of our spacecraft. You know, we we build a lot of our things that we send into space out of titanium but titanium is actually fairly thin when it's worked with, and so we cover it with ceramics and all kinds of things to absorb heat. If you take the heat shield, for instance, off the Space Shuttle Endeavor that's sitting at the Science Center, uh, it will burn up in about two nanoseconds once it enters the Earth's atmosphere. Why? Because it is unshielded from the heat of the evil of the atmosphere. And so the molecules in the skin of that thing would instantaneously vaporize as happened to the Columbia when it re-entered and one of those tiles came off. The point is that love itself is the heat shield. 
It endures all things. No matter what you throw at it, it will endure it. And it'll get you safely to where the Lord wants you to go. It endures all types of difficulty. No matter what kind of harm is attempted to be brought to that person or that situation through the enemy, his devices, whether that's embarrassment, whether that's gossip, real love is an impenetrable barrier between the person and the effects of this world. It endures all things. So I want to cover this with love and no matter what you throw at me, look, I'm not going to receive that gossip about that person. I'm not going to listen to what you are saying that's destroying their character right now because I am shielding them with love so that all of that bounces right off. You understand? Love is that kind of shield. It bears up against whatever you throw at it. Love always trusts the second thing. What this means is that love never loses faith. It's always willing to think the best of others. Aren't you glad that the Lord thought the best of you when you came to faith in him? Because if he had actually just held your evil into account, none of us would be saved. Amen? Think about it. If God took all of our stuff and said, whoo, that's a bad deal. You get what I'm saying, right? Because there's none righteous in this room, not one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes? So if God were to do what we're not supposed to do, which is to take all of our cumulative stuff, and every time we go to God, well, Jeff can't listen to you today. I'm going to give you a little reading material. I want you to take this home, study it, because here's why I'm not going to talk to you. And it'd be the list of all the things that you've ever done in your entire life that are displeasing to God. Do you think you're ever going to have a relationship with God? The answer is clearly no. Amen? Because the moment you get done reading that list, you're going to add some new things onto it. Love always thinks the best in that sense. And it's not an ostrich kind of love that buries its head in the sand. We, we can still recognize the facts. It's not being gullible. It isn't just blindly trusting people with anything and everything. It's believing so much in the love of God and his ability to change the situation that you're willing to even be hurt and say, you know what, I'm going to trust this to the Lord. I'm going to trust my messed up husband to the Lord. I'm going to trust my broken marriage to the Lord. I'm going to take my boss who hates my guts to the Lord. And I'm going to trust God. That God is able to do what God can do and that I can't do it. And so I should not be thinking of them in such a way that God can't reach them. You see, it trusts them to God. It always does that. I I can tell you this. I have not ever been wrong trusting a situation to the Lord. But I have been wrong numerous times in trusting my own understanding of situations. 
Very often I'm wrong trusting my own nerves. Is as as much as I would like to tell you that I'm a pretty methodical person. I'm well studied. I'm well read, and that's not meant to be braggadocious. I just try and do what I do well. I can tell you that there's times when I don't get it. And I need to recognize that I don't get it, but I know someone who does. And so I trust him. I'm not leaning on my own understanding. In all of my ways, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, amen? In all of my ways, I'm to trust the Lord, amen? Not my own understanding. And in all of my ways, I acknowledge him, the same principle in the Old Testament. I put people into God's hands and say, God, you can handle this. I can't. That's what real love does. That's what agape does. A third thing, and this is going to mess with some of you tonight. Love doesn't have boundaries. It gives the benefit of the doubt 100% of the time. In other words, it isn't as long as, oh, I'll go here, but I will not go there. And I'm not, again, suggesting to you that you endure physical violence or any of those types of things. I'm not saying that people can just beat you up endlessly and you have to stand there and take it. But what the Bible is saying is that love gives the benefit of the doubt in every circumstance and situation. Even when you think that person is lying to you. Even when that person has a history of doing the wrong thing. True love, God's love, gives you the benefit of that same doubt. And I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'm asking you to honestly examine your own lives. Do any of you in here have besetting sin that you return to over and 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 over again and have for your entire lives, even though you are, by God's grace, freed from the penalty of that sin, but the consequences of that sin, and I can name a few things for you, like alcohol abuse, a violent temper, You can't tell the truth to save your life. You see, people have sin in their life. God's love gives every last one of us the benefit of the doubt because that's the only thing that gets us past your sins being greater than my sins or my sins being greater than your sins. It's the only way to reconcile two sinners or a perfect God to an unholy sinner. God cannot believe the worst of you because he has a reason to believe the worst of you because he knows everything about you. So his love says, I choose not to believe the worst about you. I choose to believe the best of you. And that is exactly what we are supposed to do with other people's lives, especially in our marriage relationships. That's how you can deal with conflict lovingly. Because when I dare to think the best of someone who's imperfect, then they will be able to think the best of me because I'm imperfect. I mess up. I don't have it all together. You're probably saying, well, I do. That's just proof you don't. 
You see, when someone comes into, comes into me and says, they bring their list of the things that their spouse has done to them. That, by the way, is not keeping uh, an eye on the best. That's keeping an eye on the worst. And then you put the two lists together. Eventually what happens is the lists themselves become the, the objects of conflict. And instead of thinking the best, it's just like, well, my list is shorter than yours. You better be really thankful that God doesn't do that to you. Because his list is shorter than everybody's. Amen? So we all fail. If it's about the list thing, forget it. A fourth thing. Love always finds a reason for hope. I love this. Failure does not have to be your end. Failure does not have to be your end because God does not see you through your failure. God sees you victorious in Christ Jesus. And so when we see other people, we're always supposed to have a reason to hope for them. God can change my husband. God can change my wife. God can change that situation at work. God can change my friends. God can change my parents. God can change my children. God's capable of changing anyone, anywhere, anytime. There is always a reason for hope. We're supposed to hope like that. That's what agape does. That's what God's love does for you. God is still expressing hope towards you that while you were yet a sinner... Christ died for you as an ungodly person. Amen? That's deep hope, isn't it? Isn't that deep hope? Because if it was just about reality, again, none of us would ever be saved. I would never be able to come to a holy God based on my own merit. That's why the justification of the flesh can win no one eternal life. You can't dress this up enough to make it suitable for there. God has to forget it. God has to forgive it. God has to have hope that the future is better than the present. That's why we can say Romans 8, 28 proudly, amen? All things work together for the good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes, amen? Because there's a lot of good, non-good things in me, but they'll work together to get to that good place, Amen? One day you're going to step out of time and into eternity and it's going to be golden. But right now, you're dirt. Amen? You might be gold-plated dirt, but you're just still dirt. From the dust of the earth we were created to the dust you shall return. And until your spirit is separated from your body, you still have flesh. And in your flesh, Scripture says, dwells no good thing. We dress our flesh up pretty good sometimes, don't we? Anybody guilty of dressing up your flesh? Don't raise your hand. We are. Oh, I, 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 if you heard what they said, of course I should talk like that. No, no, really, that's just sin dwelling in us. Failure is not your final end. Have hope for other people that failure is not their final end. A fifth thing. And make sure you get this right. Love always steadfastly perseveres. It does not just persevere. It is steadfast in its perseverance. 
In other words, it goes the extra mile in the perseverance. It doesn't say, well, as long as it only goes to here. As long as I only hurt this much. As long as it only costs me this. As long as it stays within the parameters of those things with which I want to assign love, then I'm good with it. No, love continually always perseveres steadfastly. It hangs on. It hangs tough. It refuses to give up. It refuses to give up in spite of sin. It refuses to give up in spite of hurt and failure and disappointment, in spite of setbacks, in spite of fear, in spite of sorrow. It refuses to quit. Amen? That's what God's love did for you and me. God refused to give up on me. And this is why I keep going back to the representation of the cross. Jesus did not give up on us. The nails are being driven into his hands. He's like, man, this is just too much. You know, I was okay with the crown of thorns. I was perfectly fine. As long as you were going to just beat me, I was okay with that. Steadfast all the way to death. Sacrificing himself in our place. That's what real love looks like in your marriage. If you're looking right now for your husband or your wife, if you're in that place to where you're waiting on God to speak to you, let me tell you, you memorize these 13 verses and then you hold that person to those verses and say, that's what I'm looking for right there. Because anyone that will love you like this will love you to the day you die. No matter how many cherry pies you had for Christmas. In my case, pecan pie, apple pie, and cherry pie. It's right here. No, it isn't about what you look like. It isn't about how you dress. It's not about your age spots or lack thereof. One of the things I look in the mirror and go like, I don't. I used to have actually a tan. All of that has moved around. It's just like in very small locations now. <laughs> My pigment is collecting. It's just like limited edition engagements. <laughs> that kind of love steadfastly perseveres. Because you know what? Sometimes you're going to get disappointed, aren't you? Probably going to have a failure or two along the way. But real love refuses to give up. And in that sense, the sixth thing, that's why it's completely unable to fail. It can't fail. It is so fixated on the well-being of others that it is impossible for that kind of love to fail. Because here's what happens. What's the worst that can happen in that scenario? You die trying to love like Jesus loves. Well, that's terrible. You would become just like the Lord in that sense. And I'm not saying any of you actually are going to be glorified and turn into God. So for those listening online, I didn't just say that people become God. 
But if you were to give your life, that's exactly why the Apostle Paul, writing to us men about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, and said, and you husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his, whoops, life for it. Amen? What do you think he was referring to? This kind of love. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I I want you to persevere through every heartache and every trial, every tribulation. I want you to trust implicitly, even when there's no reason to trust. Because I want you to trust me, Jeff. I want you to give the benefit of the doubt 100% of the time. Jeffrey Eskill, you need to have a reason to hope because I hope for you. You see how it works? You see, this kind of love is the type of love that transcends everything. Everything. It's not the type of love that gives up because you lose your home. It's not the type of love that gives up because one of the two of you wrecks a car and now you've got to take a bus. It's not the kind of love that gives up because there's a few extra pounds that got put on over your married life. It's not the kind of love that gives up because of some circumstance or situation that's come to you. It's the type of love that endures every last thing that will ever come your way. That's why it's supreme. That's why it can't fail. And to that end, he compares it. He says, look, all these things that you Corinthians are so gung-ho to have and do and be, these things you've been bragging about and fighting over like tongues and prophecy and knowledge, you're sitting up there on the Oropagus and you're haggling over the final point, finer points of philosophy when in fact all of your cumulative knowledge is going to fail you the moment you become glorified, the dumbest among you is going to know more than the smartest person on this earth. Do you understand what he's saying? He said, look, this isn't the end. This is in the mirror dimly. Knowledge is going to cease. Prophecy is going to cease. Tongue's going to go away. They'll be stilled. The knowledge that you have on right now, it's, it, it's good. But the fact of the matter, agape love transcends all of this. And so this building up that we do right now with spiritual giftedness. And here's where it comes back into view for us. Praise the Lord for spiritual gifts. Amen? Why? Because every last one of us benefits from them when they're used with love. If someone has the gift of prophecy, they're able to speak either forth the things God's already said or foretell the things that are coming. That benefits the church. It builds up the church. It blesses the church. But when we are all glorified and in the presence of the Lord, when we see him face to face, nobody's going to need that anymore. You're going to be with the king. Jesus can tell you himself personally. You'll go, well, how's he going to speak to billions of people? He created the known universe by speaking it into existence. I'm pretty sure he can communicate with a few million of us. So, so we put the emphasis on these things that are actually temporary. Prophecies will cease. Evangelism. 
When the Lord finally returns for his church, when the rapture happens and the second coming comes, nobody's going to need another prophetic word. Nobody's going to need to be evangelized because the king of kings will do it himself. So these things are just for here. They're just for now. So why are we haggling over them? They're temporary. They have tremendous usefulness. And they are special. They're they're wonderful. They're gifts. But they have a very limited date stamp. I turned over a couple of things in our closet. You know, every once in a while you go through your pantry and you finally make it to the back. And you find some things and you turn them over and go, oh, wrong decade. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You look at it, it's like, I'm pretty sure, honey, we do not want to eat this stuffing. Because this was made by Genghis Khan Bakery right here. You know, you, you take it and you don't. Because it, it's reached its useful life expectancy, amen? The gifts listed in your Bible have a useful life expectancy. And it's here and it's now. It is for the church age. The age of grace. And that's it. They're not going to be in heaven the same way that they are here because they're going to be unnecessary. And so tongues, the thing that they're arguing over, that Paul's going to spend almost all of chapter 14 going, you know, I'd rather you spoke to each other in plain language. These things that they were having, well, you know, I speak in tongues. I pray in tongues. Well, I speak and pray in tongues. Well, my grandmother's mother spoke in three different tongues. And my aunt's uncle's cousin wrote a book on tongues. As wonderful as the gift of tongues can be, compared to being home with Jesus, bupkis, that's a Yiddish term for nada, nothing, doesn't matter. You see, we haggle over things that are going to be meaningless in eternity is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's why I know we're not the sharpest tools in the shed. On this earth, away from our true home, one day we're going home, amen? It's been the focus of our Christmas messages. God came to take us home because I currently have a finite mind. I am that guy. I've shared this with you. I read signs. I am that guy. I'm the one who stands there and I just have to know exactly what this thing is. But it's still a finite mind. There's only so much you can stuff in there. My problem is not putting it in. My problem is getting it back out. Probably some of you suffer from the same thing. You put it in, you put it in, you put it in, and then your retrieval system is broken. It's like, I know it's in there somewhere. Well, that's because we have finite minds. We can only process so much. We're like an overloaded hard drive. You've got to do a little bit of memory dump so you can get some other stuff in there. But that's not true with God's agape love. That will continue forever. Forever. If we could actually love like this or do our best to love like this now, this actually is eternal. 
This is the type of love that if you could translate all these things into perfection, into my non-sharp, toolish self, that's the type of thing that one day we're going to have in perfection when we get to heaven. It was God's love that caused him to reach out to us unredeemed humanity. Amen? It wasn't that he needed another planet. It wasn't that he couldn't have created other perfect beings. It wasn't that he couldn't have made a whole other universe if he wanted to. But in his love, he reached out to us. It's his love that saved us. It's his love that's going to bring us into his kingdom one day. It's his love that's going to present us faultless before his throne of grace. Amen? It's not speaking in tongues that's going to get you there. It's not you memorizing the entire Bible. Did you know that? You can memorize the entire Bible and actually still go to hell. Because it's the love of God through the good news of the gospel by you repenting of your sin and presenting yourself before the Lord of glory as a child crying out for his grace, his unmerited favor, that's how you receive Christ. It's not, well, I finally learned enough. That's why he says knowledge will cease. Because there's no one in this room that could ever learn everything there is to make you perfect. You can't do it. Based on that kind of a perspective... Basically what he's saying, you know, we got a few dull edges, each one of us, but one day we're going to grow up. So he says, when I was a child, I spoke, I thought, I reasoned just like a child does. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. We started to kind of act our age. Now, I, I know none of you had this experience during the Christmas celebration where you had some relative that's incapable of acting their age. Amen? You don't have to tell me their names. But we probably all have at least one or two in our family where it's just like, are you ever going to grow up? Why is it we think that? Because the normal path of travel for a human being is that you're not still playing video games when you're 45. Just saying. There are a few other more important things on the face of the earth than worrying about the next level of Fortnite. So when you see somebody that's 45, 50 years old, man, I just got Fortnite level 714, you're kind of like, dude, there's a few more important things you ought to be concerning yourself with, like getting a job. You see, that's childish thinking. And we instantaneously understand it as childish thinking because it is not what you expect out of an adult, right? An adult has some different concerns, amen? Like taking care of their own family, providing income, caring for a home. Childish people talk childish things. So Paul says... People who haggle over the gift of tongues and people who haggle over prophetic words and people who haggle over, well, I have special knowledge. I know about the blood moons. 
You know what I'm saying? You know, well, well, I, I just did all this gematria and I know all, I added up all the numbers of every one of the letters in the entire epistle to the Ephesians. And I found out at the end, if you add them up and subtract all the Roman numerals, that it comes up that special knowledge. And we have people on this planet that brag that they know when the rapture of the church is going to happen, or they know when the second coming is going to happen, or they know that they know that they know, and they're really special people. And they have a piece of information that nobody else has. That's why scripture plainly states that there is no special revelation that comes to any human being. Every last bit of it can be known by anybody that's on this planet that loves the Lord Jesus. So Paul's saying, look, that's childish. Because here's what's happening. You're, you're splitting the church up. Well, we're, for the, we're the blood moon people. Well, we're the, we're the, we're the Galatianists. We still believe that you ought to be actually a Jew and a Gentile at the same time. Paul addresses these things when he gets to the book of Galatians. He says, look, you have all these people running around. They're trying to keep the law when you've been set free from the law. So there's some special knowledge. You're trying to hold it over other people. Well, we're special. I wear a kippah. I wear a talus. I have my own shofar. And I get it, you know, every morning. Now look. I love the Jewish people. I have a shofar and I can actually blow it. It's in my office. And when I go to Israel, I'm like, man, this is awesome. I just wish they all knew the actual Messiah. But I'm not going to come back here and we're not going to be selling, keep us out in the, in the lobby so you can all cover your head. We're not going to be wearing prayer shawls when we come in here. We've been set free from those things. So when someone comes and lays that burden, that's what Jesus was saying. He says, don't put a burden upon you that neither you nor your forebears could bear. He's saying, grow up. The word says what it says. It says it to everybody so that we can be set free to walk in grace. Not grace to sin, by the way, but grace to serve. One day we're all going to grow up. In the meantime, we're in the process of growing up. Amen? That's where we are. Everybody's growing up a little more into the image of Jesus. And so he leaves us with this. Abide in. I love that word. For in my Father's house are many abiding places. Amen? That's what it actually says. Many dwelling places. Many homes. So as Jesus is speaking there in John chapter 14, what he's saying is, I'm going away, I'm going to prepare an abiding place for you. That where I am, you might be also. And so now the apostle Paul uses that same word that Jesus used says, I want you to make your home in. I want your life to so represent me that when someone walks into your life, when they see your life as a dwelling place, now abide in faith. Substance of that which is not seen, amen? The thing hoped for. Hebrews chapter 11. Now abide in faith. 
Live in faith. Dwell in faith. Set up your residence so that it is of faith. Hope. Expectantly looking forward and hastening the glorious appearing of our great God and King. Amen? Hopeful expectation is the, is the picture here. Now abide in faith and hope and love which he's just got done saying, this is what agape love isn't. This is what agape love is. Now I want you to abide in faith, expecting God to do what God said he would do. And hope, looking forward to that day when he's going to keep that promise. And love, agape. I want you to live there. He was basically saying, look, this is your spiritual reality. This is the reality of us as believers. We are to be living in, dwelling in, setting up our homes in faith and hope and love. Not just some spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are wonderful. But spiritual gifts that are not abiding in faith, hope, and love are useless. Spiritual gifts that are used as a weapon are even worse. They can be harmful. He said, I want you to live in faith and hope and love. Why? Because faith is the foundation. It's actually the content of God's message, isn't it? We receive Christ by faith, do we not? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is an essential, it's necessary to your salvation experience. You have to have faith. Here's the great news. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says God will give it to you as a gift. It's not of yourself. You don't need to boast about it. Faith is a gift. Hope is the expectancy of that gift coming to fruition in your life. So it's not wishing upon a star. It's not like I hope. It's no, I hope. I am hopeful. In other words, you're so filled with hope that it's truth that it changes the way you live your life. When I think of my hope for heaven, it changes the way I think about everything. Because I'm not hoping in this life, I'm hoping in the next one. I'm hoping in the King of Kings, I'm hoping in the Lord. So my hope is in something tangible. His name is Jesus. Amen? So it's not wishful thinking. Too many people think of Christian hope much like karma. It's like, well, if I do good things, then I'll get good things. That's not hope. That's works. Hope is us believing and trusting God and counting it as if we already know it to be true and then acting on it. That's real hope. It's not I hope so. It's I am hoping in him. And he is able. And he is incapable of failing. And love. You see, faith that's the foundation. It's really the content of the gospel. Hope is the actual attitude and the focus. I'm now focused I said, look, I know what the gospel is going to do in my life. I'm not just wishfully thinking. 
I know that one day when I take my last breath or Jesus calls the church home, I know where I'm going. It's not blind faith, it's hopeful expectancy. God spent an awful lot of time writing his word, convincing me of some central truths, and one of them is one day I'm going to see Jesus face to face. That kind of hope. And then love is that final action. Love is how we put all this stuff into practice in our daily lives. It's being completely in tune with the things that God wants to do in us and to us and through us. That's how it all gets lived out. Ultimately, we take all these things that love is and that's what we do. We take all these things that love is not and those are the things we shy away from. We say, no, Lord, I'm not going to hold the grudge. I'm not going to keep a record of wrong. I refuse to think evil of that person. I absolutely will believe the best of them. I'm going to persevere in loving them. You see, that's the action part. That's love working out in our lives and to the lives of others. Romans 5.8 says very simply, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see the agape in there? Do you see God's love in action in that? That while we were actively present tense sinning, while we were going the wrong direction, this is where the story of the prodigal comes in. The prodigal son's going the wrong direction. Guess what the father's doing? Chasing after the prodigal. But as soon as the prodigal makes the turn, now they're running towards each other. And that gap closes very fast. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, made the ultimate sacrifice, said, I'll run all the way down the road, all the way to the end if necessary. That's love. That's what we're to have towards one another. Are you willing to chase down somebody who's frankly unworthy of that love? I hope you are because you're unworthy of that love. And so am I. But he loved us anyway. To the end, anyway. With his life, anyway. Jesus did these things. And so we are supposed to do these things. Amen? That's why it is the supreme thing. The gospel life lived out is a life of agape love. And it'll love to the uttermost. It'll love to the last day. It will always love. It will never not love. And I pray that we live that way. We're about to start a new year. For many of us, we get a chance. This is a glorious thing about New Year's. Do a reset. Go over to Staples, get yourself, you know, the reset button thing. and Put it on your desk, and every time you start feeling some of those old things come back up, that's not a copy. I'm starting over. He who began that good work in us is faithful, isn't he? And that's the great thing about our walks with the Lord. We get do-overs every day. In the world, you don't get do-overs. Sometimes do-overs are death. But in heaven, you get as many as you need.
Let's love like God loves. Let's love supremely. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Alex is going to come back out, I think. We'll close in a chorus. Father, we thank you that the ABCs of the gospel are so simple. Lord, we've admitted that we're sinners. We aren't righteous. None of us, not any of us are. Lord, we've all fallen short of that love that you've shown to us. And we realize that the wages of that sin is actually death. Lord, we have to admit that. But we also believe that you, Jesus, came and died on Calvary's cross. That your death in our place conquered sin and conquered death for us. And while we were still actively going the wrong way, you came after us. Lord, we we believe that. And Lord, tonight we confess we've called upon your name. We know we're saved. We have that expectant hope. And because of that great love wherein you loved us first, we can have joy and peace. You'll strengthen us for the battles. And Lord, give us patience when we run short. Help us to always love the way you love. People don't know anything else about us. Pray that they would know that we love the way you love without condition, if necessary to our own detriment, and that we'll go all the way down the road. Lord, we'll hop in the crib. We'll we'll get in with if we have to. Lord, help us to love like you love. In Jesus' name, amen.